I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 15. As you do, I wonder if at uh, your house, like ours, you have a place where you keep photo albums. We have a large coffee table in the middle of our family room, and it has uh, kind of a lower level to it with some hinged parts to it. And if you lift up those, you reach in there, there's lots of pictures and photo albums. And then under our bookcase in the end of the family room, if you open up the doors, there's a whole row of family photo albums. You don't look at them very often, do you? I know we don't. They're there and we enjoy them. We're very familiar with them. Did you ever have a slow evening? They're rare, aren't they? At our house, it's usually a Sunday evening. And um, I'll be sitting on the couch resting or something, and I'll glance over and I will think about those pictures. And that might stir a memory, and so I'll reach over and grab it and sit on the couch. Jonathan loves to sit there as we turn the pages of the photo album. And oh, oh yeah, oh, I remember that one. I remember that. That was a good time. Oh, yeah. Hadn't thought about them for a while. That's the mindset that I want you to have as we open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15. It's not a photo album with real pictures, but in a way, if ever there is a page of our Bible that contains pictures, it's this page. It's the words of our Lord Jesus in the form of a familiar parable, a parable that, though it's called a parable, has three distinct parts to it, most of which are probably familiar to almost everybody in this room. And the third part of the parable is probably the most familiar parable, maybe running neck and neck with the parable of the Good Samaritan and the ministry of our Lord Jesus. I want us to read Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32, and catch the scope of these parables. But I want you to think of it as this. It's kind of like those photo albums at home. You know about this. You've looked at these pictures many times. And you're pretty familiar. You already kind of know what, what it says. But it's like that old photo album. You open it up and you look at it and, oh yeah, yeah, that was a good thing to look at it again. And this morning I hope that you'll find that it's a good thing to open the album of God's Word at these word pictures of our Lord Jesus and that you will be encouraged and reminded and refreshed of maybe a time in the past that these bring to mind, focused upon the grace of our Lord Jesus and the cleansing, redemptive power of His blood in our lives. You see, everybody here has a past. And some of you are living in the present of your past. That is, you're still unredeemed. You're still in darkness. I want to challenge you this morning to hear the gospel, hear the love of our Lord Jesus and understand why he died on the cross for our sin. So we take a little break from Genesis this week and we'll be back to it soon enough just to think again at these beautiful pictures as we head to the Lord's table. Now Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, follow along in your copy of God's word. Will you please as I read? Notice the context is given to us in verses 1 and 2. It's the reasons why Jesus tells these stories. He tells us right away. Now, verse 1, chapter 15, Luke. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him, him being Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's how our Lord Jesus was, wasn't it? Always caring about sinful people. Aren't you glad? 
But that's how the Pharisees were too, wasn't it? Always pointing the finger at our Lord. Look at Him. Mutter, 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 mutter. He hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. That was the, the dregs. That was the lowest level of society. Why would He hang around them? Jesus, hearing the muttering now, tells this parable in three parts. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, verse 8, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, And there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property with them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile... The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when, his, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What a great passage of Scripture. Marvelous stories for us this morning. Word pictures, if you will, to look at. Familiar though they are. Let's remind ourselves that whenever we study parables, we have to be careful to not uh, strain at every part of them. We know from the context that Jesus is there surrounded by sinners, people that the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, they were legalistic, they tried to keep the law of Moses for their righteousness, and they were kind of uh, snobby kind of religious people, didn't think that they were sinners, were glad that they weren't like those sinners around them, could never understand why Jesus would allow sinners to have close proximity to him. So Jesus, in that context, wants to explain to them. It's like he's looking at him and he says, let me tell you something about our Heavenly Father, and then you'll understand me a little better. And then he shares these three pictures. The first one is about a man and his sheep. And I don't think that it's... I think you'll get in trouble with all these parables if you try to bring a parallel out and everything. I was reading one commentator, commentary where they were commenting that, that some uh, interpreters try to make... Uh, a parallel on everything, that they're convinced that the, uh, the man in the, in the first story who's the shepherd represents Jesus because Jesus was a shepherd. And it's obvious that in the third story that, that the Father represents God the Father, so surely the woman in the second story represents the Holy Spirit, so that there you have the Trinity. And they, they talk about how the fact that uh, the woman got a little lamp and that that lamp represents something and that the broom represents something and, and uh, it represents a picture of the church. And uh, I think that you have to be careful. I think that Jesus is dealing with some self-righteous religious people and he's got some sinners in front of them and he tells a story that both parties can relate to. And I think the point of the story is, is quite evident in each one. The first one, the man and his sheep, he has 99 sheep when he counts them and puts them in the fold for that night. Oh my word, I have a sheep missing, and off he goes. He finds his sheep, perhaps spreads the word to some of the ranchers nearby. Hey, come on over, we're going to have an extra special dinner tonight, I'm going to celebrate. I found this sheep of mine that was lost. You know, the point is, he didn't have 99 and say, ah, that's good enough. What's one sheep? Let the coyotes have it, you know? And so it's a picture, and, and notice the parallel of what he says in verse 7. He says, I tell you that in the same way, here's the point of the parable, it's in the same way that a shepherd would go seeking a lost sheep that your heavenly Father seeks. And, and one, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And I think the, the, the inference of the passage isn't that they're good, fine church people who, don't, who are right with God, walking with God, and that he doesn't care about them. No, it's not that. I think that that's a reference to the Pharisees to remind them there's more rejoicing when one of these sinners repents and follows after God than it is all of you 99 who think you don't need to repent over anything. He moves then from the lost sheep to the lost coin. He goes from a story about a man and agriculture to a woman inside her house. Perhaps it was a mixed audience there. Suppose a woman has ten coins and loses one. She doesn't just say, oh, I don't need it. No, it represents that coin probably represented about a day's wage. I don't know how she had them tied up, whether they were in a little 
fold in her clothing or in a little cloth bag or leather bag of some kind, whether a little child tugging on her jerked it loose, somehow her coins spilled to the ground. And inside her dark little eastern home there, she had to light a lamp, get her broom, and carefully seek her coins. And then she finds them, and so she calls out the window to her neighbor ladies, or maybe as I can picture in Malawi, all the ladies out by a fire cooking, ladies, rejoice with me. All the women gather together. Why? Verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Don't you love this kind of God? He doesn't need us. But he seeks us. I was thinking it's like a family that has five, six, seven kids. Those are big families nowadays. You go to the mall and you get out and you go in the van and you're getting ready to go and you count the kids and one's missing. You don't say, oh, just leave them at the mall. We'll go out to Burger King and save us a few bucks, right? (laughs) When one is missing, we go after it. That's the whole point that Jesus is trying to point out here. Look. God is a God who seeks after sinners. You see, most of us, when we're in our sinful mindset, we're not too worried about God, are we? We don't go a seeking after Him, but He pursues us. He then moves into the third story, and this is the most familiar of the three stories. And also, He spends the most time on it and gives the most detail. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. We have three characters in this story. We have two sons and a father. We have the younger son who we might say he's kind of a punk and um, kind of irresponsible. We have the father and we have the oldest son. And in a way, he's a punk too. Kind of self-righteous and looks down his nose at his younger brother that he figures never raised a finger around the ranch to help it thrive and grow and bear a profit anyway kind of reading into his mind there. But as we look at it, look at 11 and 12, we see that the youngest son is, is hard-hearted and selfish as we look at him first. The younger one is who we meet first. He's hard-hearted and selfish, and, and we know this from verses 11 and 12, because look what he does. The man had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. We know in this culture, and, and even in our culture today, what a spit in the eye it was because it's the younger son going up to his father and he's, it's as though he's looking at his dad and saying, Hey, Pop, when are you going to drop dead so that I can just get, the, get the, the inheritance that I'll have when this place is liquidated? Well, his father, you know, and you just kind of want to smack this kid, don't you? The father looks at him and he says, uh, Okay, I'll do that. Under Levitical law, it would have been divided two-thirds to the oldest son and one-third to the younger son. Later on, that's reflected when the father reminds the older son, isn't all that I have yours? Because it's probably a reflection of the fact that the whole ranch had been deeded over to him at the time when the inheritance was divided. But again, we won't strain at the fine points because it's just a story to illustrate a bigger point. And so he divided his property with them. We see that this boy is not only hard-hearted and selfish, but we see that he is 
foolish and self-indulgent. He looks at his father, give me my share of the estate, so he divided the property with them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off in a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Can you imagine that day? He's gone in and talked to his father. His father makes the agreement, okay, son, if that's what you want, I'll do it. He, he works through the, the proper paperwork and negotiation. Evidently, the property is deeded over to the, the other son and two-thirds to the oldest son. And the younger son evidently liquidates his portion of it, turns it into cold cash, puts it in a bag, grabs his backpack, and down the road he gets. Can you imagine how the father felt? as he watched him leave with that bag of money. Probably he didn't work very hard for that money. And there he goes. He's foolish and self-indulgent because it says that he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth on wild living. The Greek word, the commentators tell me, the Greek word translated wild living is an English word it, it translates into an English word, debauchery. Base, wild, sinful, lustful living. We know a little bit about it when you look in verse 30 where it says, when the older brother was talking to his father and was upset with his father about the, his younger brother and the status of, of how things were shaking out, he said, but when this son of yours, verse 30, was squandered, has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. It was wild, immoral, sinful living. This boy thinks he has it all together. This boy thinks he's the man with his bag of money, faraway city, no pop to tell him what to do. Get, get out of my life. He's young, he's foolish, he's hard-hearted, he's selfish, he's arrogant, he's a punk. That's what he is. He's the kind of guy, you just kind of want to walk up and put an elbow up above his right ear. And say, straighten up, would you? What is wrong with you? But that's not the point of Jesus' story. In fact, um, we're supposed to see someone in that young man, aren't we? We might find ourselves, if we're not careful, standing with the Pharisees, wondering, why does Jesus mess around with these dirty, rotten sinners? He goes on to share in the story that the young man runs into some unplanned and unforeseen circumstances. All of a sudden, the bottom drops out of the, the young man's life. He's had a lot of money. He's had a lot of friends. He's been partying. He thinks he's got it all together. And notice what verse 14, everything changed overnight. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. I didn't think it would be like this. That's the way sin will do you, isn't it? It lures you in and it, and it makes you think you got something going that's really good and then all of a sudden the bottom drops out. What the world's going on? Turn with me to James chapter 1 and take a look at this, what James says in James chapter 1 about how sin lures us in and how deceptive it is. And this young man went hook, line, and sinker for it all. His pocket full of money. Off he went. But then everything flew from together for him. Look what James says in James chapter 1, verse 13. He said, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. There's the enticing part of sin. Notice the rest of the verse, 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There's a progression here, isn't there? It's the illustration I used to think of, of I've shown and used it before, of a big, a big lure that my dad had for fishing northern pike. And he would show me how that thing would go through the water and the spoons would flick back and forth and there's a big gob of black buck hair. And hidden in that black buck hair is a big treble hook. And they'd hook one lure up here and hook the big one in the back, about three feet apart, and cast them up in northern Wisconsin fishing for northern pike. Now think about being an old northern pike down in the grass, in that cold northern Wisconsin water. There comes again. You know how fishermen cast? Cast it over, put it back over here. I'm going to get it. It's so good. I know it's good. Bam! And he ends up with a mouthful of hooks. And that's where we are in Luke 15, aren't we, with this young man? Thought he had it together. Thought the faraway city looked so bright. Thought he was so cool in all of his sin. And he's now he's got a mouthful of hooks and doesn't know what to do about it. A similar picture, you don't have to turn there, but in Proverbs chapter 7, there's a similar picture about the adulterous young man who followed after the sweet lips of that adulterous woman. Remember, her husband was gone and she lures him in. And then he said, all of a sudden, Solomon said, all of a sudden... He went into her like a deer stepping into a noose, like a deer getting an arrow through the liver. All of a sudden, everything comes from together. That's the way sin does. It destroys us, doesn't it? And so back in Luke 15, here we are with our young man. He was hard-hearted and selfish. He wanted his father to die. He was foolish and self-indulgent. He spends all his money with no thought for tomorrow. That's how deceptive sin is. And now the unplanned, unforeseen circumstances in verse 14 lead to the pain and suffering of sin. Look at it, verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's got no one in his life now. That whole bag of money that represented all the party, the friends, the good life. When the money was gone, where are the friends? They're gone too, aren't they? They're gone too. And now for this young Jewish boy, and I think it's no mistake that Jesus points out that now he finds himself out in a field with the only job he can get, feeding pigs. For those Pharisees standing there, it would, they would rather die than go touch a pig feed a pig or be identified with that industry. Here this Jewish boy is, and there was evidently, the commentators say, some kind of a, a reed or a, a pod that grew that they would harvest and feed to the pigs, but it was indigestible to humans. And as he watched those pigs eat this food, this husk of some kind, he longed to even eat their food, but it wouldn't even digest in his own system. 
He's so low that pigs have it better off than he does. That's what sin does. There you are. Pain and suffering, the result of sin, a mouthful of hooks. And finally, and I love the way verse 17 starts, look what it says. Look what it says. When he came to his senses. Wow. You ever try working with someone who hasn't come to their senses yet? You're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. Let sin have them for another day until they're finally lower than the pigs. It's sad to see, but it's where some people have to get and it's where some of us have been, hasn't it? And then he came to his senses and he said, Look, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, and he begins to play in his mind. This is what I'll say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. We have a wake-up call here, a new perspective, and we now have the window into his heart, and it's a humble heart, isn't it? Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. There might be some hard-hearted people here today, and that might be exactly what you need to do. You need to wake up, and you need to find your earthly father or mother if they're still living, and you need to go to them, and you need to say, I have sinned against you. And you need to look to your heavenly Father and you need to say, and I've sinned against you. The Bible tells us clearly, James also said it. James said that he lifts up the humble, but he tears down the proud. With a proud spirit, a haughty eye, God hates it. Well, this introduces us to our second character in the story, the Father. And let's just click off quickly some characteristics about the father because basically that's what the parable is about. He came to his senses. He rehearsed this speech in his head, his prayer of repentance. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Number one, we have a watching father. Don't you love that? He's been watching the father knows what the son's been doing. The father wasn't born yesterday. The father knows why the young man took his money and went to a faraway city. And maybe he's even aware from watching the headlines of what's been going on. And maybe he even realizes right about now that money bag is empty. I wonder, I wonder how my boy is today. And it's with a heavy heart. He sits on the porch and looks down the trail. He's a watching father. Oh, but don't miss it. Notice he's a waiting father. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He must have been a watching and waiting father. Otherwise, why would it just happen to be that he caught him coming down the trail at a distance? Notice the Bible says clearly here that he's filled with compassion. He loved this son. He's a loving father. Oh, man, that's what a sinning boy needs, isn't it? A watching, waiting, loving father. But I want you to see too then what it says. It says he was filled with compassion and he ran to his son. I'd like to see that. You know what a no-no it was probably for this Middle Eastern patriarchal head of the family old man. One thing they don't do, run. I'm going to guess. 
Any more than any of us have probably seen our great-granddaddies run. They don't run much. And there he is watching, he's waiting, he's loving, and he sees the boy coming. Grabs up that one like those old knobby knees just a humping down that trail going after him. You know, it should have been the other way around, shouldn't it? The boy should have been running. The boy should have been running to his father. But notice, he's a merciful and generous father. And when he gets to him, look what it says. The son says, and we have a moment here where we see the repentance of this boy. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. It should have been the other way around, shouldn't it? The boy should have been at his father's feet, kissing his feet, kissing his ring, begging for forgiveness. No, it's the loving father with the big bear hug. Can't you see the Pharisees sitting over here? Maybe glancing over at the sinners, and the sinners, their eyes are wide. It's starting to come together, isn't it? That Jesus, he could really tell a story. And the son said to him, and notice his prayer exactly as he rehearsed it, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Boy, that's true humility, isn't it? He didn't just say, hey, I messed up. I did wrong. I know I did wrong. And if I did anything to offend you, would you please forgive me? Now, not one of these carefully crafted, worded, uh, I'm sorry's that's not really an I'm sorry. Father, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against heaven and I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore. Father, I've seen some pigs that are higher in stature socially than I am. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. <laughs> Get the ring and put it on him. Put, put his sonship back on him. Let him know that he's back in and everything's good. What a merciful, generous, kind father. And then he throws the big feast, and you know the story, and he's a celebrating father. And that's the point of what Jesus had already told in the story of the sheep and the story of the coin. We have a heavenly Father who loves us, who's merciful, who longs for sinners to come to Him, to put His arm around a sinner and kiss Him, and then throw a party. I wonder what heaven's parties are like. It says that the angels even rejoice in the presence of the Father. Another redeemed one. Another one that the blood of our Lord Jesus and the angels love the Lord Jesus, that His blood satisfied the wrath of a holy Father. Praise God. Oh, there's that older son. He's the third character, isn't he? And he's a, a jealous, angry older brother who has concluded in his mind that that boy doesn't deserve it. And in fact, my dad, even though I've worked the farm, and in fact, haven't even gotten a goat Speak of the fattened calf held just for special times. I haven't even gotten a goat. And maybe some of you firstborn in the audience can kind of relate to that feeling. What is it about those younger kids that receive favor? The point of the older brother is, though, he's in it for himself. He's not in it for the father's sake, is he? And his father looks at him and he says, Boy, isn't everything I have yours? And am I not here for you all the time? Just like the Pharisees could have entered into a relationship easy with God and through Christ. 
They didn't want the sinful, sinner, younger brothers to enter in and have the celebrating Heavenly Father. Will you turn to Titus with me and let's conclude in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We have Pastor Paul writing to Pastor Titus here, the great Apostle Paul in his pastoral work as he oversees the churches in a pastoral epistle writing to Titus and saying to him, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to say this to all the churches. I want you to remember, and today we gather at the Lord's table to remember, don't we? Notice what he says. Starting with verse 3 of chapter 3 of Titus. He's describing the young punk, isn't he? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, there's a great phrase, set apart from the record of our past sin, marked in heaven as though we had never sinned at all, there's no record anywhere that I'm a sinner because I'm justified by His grace. That's what it means. We might become heirs now, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These, are excellent. these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Titus, preach it wherever you go. Titus, make sure in the churches they never forget that though we were once foolish, we were punks running from our Father, that we have a loving, gracious, celebrating Heavenly Father who ran to meet the Son, who runs this morning to meet you. Do you know what it is to enter into the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you live with guilt? Do you live with a sense of sinfulness? I had a young man look at me not long ago, sitting on a picnic table about a couple weeks ago down at our pavilion, looked at me and said, Pastor Van, but what if I've done some things that I hate so much, I, I can't stand to think about them, and they're so awful, do I have to go to hell? Can you imagine laying your head down on your pillow at night wondering, do I have to go to hell for my sin? Listen. Did you see what Paul told Titus to remember and to tell the people? Not by their own righteousness. None of us are good enough to get into heaven on our own, folks. But the loving, watching, waiting, running, celebrating, merciful Heavenly Father, out of His kindness, it says here, did what? The kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared and He saved us not by the righteous things we do, but because of His mercy. And it was through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to know why Christians everywhere take time on a regular basis to gather around the table and to hold up the juice cup and hold up the bread, the bread representing the broken body of our Lord Jesus and the cup, the shed blood of our Lord Jesus, it's because of this point because anybody who's come to Christ knows that they sinned against heaven and sinned against their heavenly Father and they've felt the kiss of their heavenly Father. 
But we also know that after a while, we can kind of be like the Pharisees and we can kind of think, I'm really glad I'm not like the rest of those sinners. No, that was us. Praise God for the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for the young man at the table that cleanses us from all sin. And I talked to him about Moses the murderer and David the adulterer and he didn't even know those stories. A 30-year-old man. Who cleanses us, will you say it with me, from all sin. Praise God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for this marvelous story. And this morning as we gather around the table, I pray that you would prod the hearts of those here today who need to feel the kiss of their Father and have their sin forgiven. Would you please show us anew and afresh in our own minds, those of us who are in Christ, how precious the grace of our Lord Jesus is and that we must never forget that we're just sinners saved by grace. With our heads bowed, let me interrupt my prayer and talk to the person who might be sitting here this morning who's outside of Christ. By that I mean that you're like that younger brother and you might not have poked your dad in the eye and said you wish you were dead and taken his money and spent it at a far off city, but you represent someone who is outside of the blessing of your father, that is your heavenly father. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Have you received the gift of God today, my friend? You have a heavenly Father who out of his kindness supplies the righteousness for us that we need to appease his holy righteous wrath through Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross. Will you in the silence of this moment, even as I finish praying, admit your sinfulness, believe that Jesus is the Christ, accept him as your Lord and Savior. Receive his kiss today. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sin and thank you for your great grace, your marvelous, infinite grace. And thank you that in a way, when you were hanging on the cross, that in a way you were thinking of each of us as individuals, your children, unable to save ourselves. Thank you for that day when the scales fall off and we recognize that we've sinned against you and against heaven. Thank you for the newness of life in Jesus Christ today. It's in Jesus' name alone we pray.